everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes highlighting deep thematic points about the Parsha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. For those of you new to the world of Matan, we are a dynamic, broad-based institute with intensive Beit Midrash programs and a wide array of innovative and challenging learning opportunities for women of all ages and from all backgrounds. Matan was founded in 1988 by Rabbi Nimal Kabina, today Matan's president, and Dr. El Ziegler is Matan's Rashat Beit Midrash and its academic director. Matan has multiple branches all over Israel. Matan has an open and nuanced approach to Torah study. Our Batei Midrash create an atmosphere that encourages independent thought, inquiry, and discovery. Check out Matan's website and social media platforms for more information about Matan and ongoing programming. Our series on Shmot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're going to try and address the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as explore together with our guests how we can anchor these ideas in our modern lives. Before moving on to this week's Parsha, I want to bring us into the setting and stage of the book of Shemot. We've moved away from the family and onto the national plane. Paro is the first to call the Israelites an Am, a nation. Often it is those on the outside who can identify evolutionary change that has overcome another. As God promised Avraham in the covenant of the pieces in the book of Breshit, we have proliferated in the land of Egypt, in a land not our own, and become a real force to reckon with. However, it will take time and some foundational events for the Israelites to shed their slave mentality and become the arbiters of their destiny. I opened our Brayshit series with the words of Rabbi Sachs, and we'll do the same here. I quote from his introduction to Shmot, The Exodus narrative is a critique of the politics of power, of empires, hierarchical societies, and the division of population into free human beings and slaves. The Torah proposes a different kind of politics, based not on power, but on covenant, the free agreement of a free people who accord absolute sovereignty to God alone. From a geographical standpoint, Shemot can be divided into three sections. Chapters 1 through 15 take place in Egypt, 15 through 18 on the way from Yamsuf to Sinai, and 19 to 40 take place in Sinai. From a content perspective, Shemot can also be divided into three, wherein the people are founded in three stages, the Exodus, the Sinai experience with its law-giving and covenant formation, and the erection of the Mishkan. We will go deep on all three of these stages as the episodes progress. Rashad Shmot opens with a summary list of Yaakov's descendants who come to Egypt. This retrospective glance provides context and appreciation for the intense population growth the Israelites experience in Egypt. We meet the amazing female cast of characters who literally and figuratively midwife the redemption process. The midwives of the Israelites, Moshe's mother and sister, and the daughter of Paro who defies her father's decree and saves the Hebrew boy. Once Moshe evolves, displaying his justice-seeking spirit and marries Sipora, God hears the cries of the people and begins the process of removing them from Egypt. Moshe is prepared in a very tense dialogue between him and God. Moshe has difficulty seeing his own capabilities through the eyes of God and has difficulty grasping how he can ever convince the people that they can uproot and leave Egypt. There is a very moving moment when Moshe approaches his father-in-law Yitro, unlike Yaakov, who had stolen away in the night from his father-in-law. 
Moshe's request reflects a transparency that has been there all along. Let me return to my brothers in Egypt and see who is still alive. We meet a set of brothers who get along. Aaron comes out to greet Moshe and kisses him. A younger son again outshines an older one, but here the older accepts this division of labor. For a brief moment before chaos erupts once again, it seems that important lessons have been learned since the book of Reshit. The final section of the Parsha brings the people to a point of desperation. After Moshe begins discussing liberation with Paro, he takes a hard line with his slaves and heavies their burdens. The people become angry with Moshe, and Moshe in turn becomes angry with God. The Parsha ends with God's promise that the mightiest threat is still to come, and that Paro will eventually let the people go. One last unusual introduction. When I recorded this episode, I had a terrible cold. While I usually record the introduction and the episode together, I wanted to spare this important introduction from my congestion and kept waiting to record it. Unfortunately, still a week and a half later, I can't seem to shake this cold. So here you have it, both the episode and the introduction, congestion and all. I pray to return for our next one with my usual NPR voice. Happy listening. My guest today is Rev. Mike Foyer, who has pioneered a new approach to Jewish history through his podcast, The Jewish Story, and is the co-author of the biblical fiction series, The Age of Prophecy. He's also a spiritual counselor working with individuals and couples. Welcome, Rev. Mike, to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. You know, you were recommended long, long, long ago by one of our most devoted podcast listeners. So shout out to Bobby Winter. That's right. Thank uh, you, Bobby. And another reminder for all of you listening that I really love your feedback and I always listen to it and it comes has to come at the right time and but I always catalog all ideas so please always feel free to reach out and uh, and I love to hear from you now Rav Mike one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on for these early partiot of the book of Shmod and as we open up our new series is because this topic of memory which is so essential to the Exodus experience and I'm sure we'll get into that is one that I know is also very close to your heart and, and the work you do and the podcast you you produce. So why don't you bring us into that, into that idea perhaps of memory and, and the Exodus experience uh, in relation to this week's Parsha, Parsha Shmot. Sure. It's a big frame. Uh, you may be pre- uh, familiar with Professor Yushalmi's distinction sure. between um, memory as a frame for our relationship with the past and history as a frame. Um, truth is, I was dabbling with that idea before I encountered his book, and it really opened my mind's book, Zahor, which I highly recommend people look at. The reason that I was so moved, however, is actually from the personal skill. Uh, my training in narrative therapy made me realize that in many ways, what I was engaged with in my attempt to teach Jewish history was narrative therapy for a nation. What do I mean? Is that the, what I'm trying to do is tell a story of the past that creates a present identity, which is really equipped to build a future that we actually want to live. So often, the way we tell the story of our past, both personally and nationally, is deeply rooted in our traumas. It's rooted in, let's just say, limited conceptions. It produces an identity, which in many ways dictates the options that we even see before us in the path that lies ahead, right? And so, therefore, I became both interested in it on the personal level and then in my teaching in history, seeing that it's an activist stance. You know, that's it's accepted today in, the, in academia that historians should have a bit of an activist stance, but it was kind of looked down upon for most of the academic development of the historical discipline. But for the Jews, we've been actively telling our story. I mean, look, the Exodus, how many times a day have you already remembered the Exodus? (laughs) Today I'm speaking, right? A whole bunch. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It it comes up everywhere. Um, It's a game I can play with my kids. Like, how many times did you remember the Exodus today? And they'll they'll pop up with however many numbers they get. 
And this tells me that we're meant to have a constant engagement with the past, which goes well beyond history and goes deeply into this sort of um, agency we gain through active memory. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because if I can just give us a bridge to our the end of Brashit Parshiot, which is at a topic, I mentioned it very briefly, but really never had a chance to go deeper in it, is that Yosef himself, as he tries to pull the pieces of his life together, creates his own frame. Uh, and this very much speaks to, you know, the stories we create, the stories we tell ourselves. You know, he said, yeah, you know, you guys meant to do real harm, but God had another plan. And that reframing is essentially telling a different story, right? I'm choosing to look at the events of my life and frame them in a way that's so different. And I agree very much just on the the counseling or the meeting other people or students, you know, very often one of our jobs, again, whether on a professional level, someone who's an actual therapist or someone who's just trying to give advice is to say to somebody, you know, the story you've been telling yourself until now is X. The question is that that story is still true for you at the moment, or it's still serving you, right? Those are, those are real personal questions that, that people have to come up uh, against and sort of deal with at different points in their life. And so I'm really curious how this intertwines with our identity as a nation and how that relates to our our beginning, you know, to wade through the story of the Exodus. Well, you know, it all hinges around the strange meaning of this word, remember, right? Um, because if you take it apart, I think it actually offers a much greater understanding. To remember is to reattach the pieces of something into a new whole. Like you're saying with Yosef, he didn't change the facts of the story. He didn't say to his brother, well, what really happened was this light opened up in the sky and, and, and God took me and brought me to Egypt. No, no, he knew exactly how things came about. But by putting together the very same events in a different frame, as you said, a new story emerges. And most importantly, he's newly empowered to actually take action. And we, we see this very clearly in the first appearance of the word memory to stick with a, a foot in, in the brace sheet for a minute, right? It, it first appears in the story in a lead up to Noah's, right? Sort of a great revolution of a new humanity. It's there in brace sheet in the eighth parak, um, where it says, God remembered Noah. It's a, it's an odd thing, as if God had forgotten, like, oh my God, no, I left him in that ark. It's been raining for weeks. Like, what? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Aside from this sort of problem of God forgetting, biblically speaking, as you well know, that's not such a problem. But just conceptually, what does that mean? What it means is that God had a moment of deep identification with Noah's experience. And in that moment of deep identification, God was brought to action. And because this is how memory functions. This is why we're meant to remember the Exodus. It's not a, um, you know, check the box. Did you remember the Exodus today? Right? Have you done your factual review of the past? The question is, have you allowed the depth of that experience to touch you right now? And by remembering, by reattaching, by identifying deeply with some formative element of our past, how does that affect me as a person, as a people? And how does it guide my action, of course, toward the future? That I see to be the core meaning of the word. You know what I also was thinking when I was looking at that pasuk is that sometimes the narration in the Torah is meant to take the perspective of God. And I was wondering if in that moment, it actually takes the perspective of the humans, meaning when we feel that God has abandoned us, we, we feel forgotten, right? Like God, he's right. The hester panim is a feeling of 
I've been looked over. No, no one sees me right now. No one sees me in my difficulty. And the Vayizkor, maybe, maybe, which you're describing from God's perspective, and I'm throwing in the possibility that maybe it's a word that describes the internal recognition of the person themselves who all of a sudden feels the divine attention being put on them. Oh, God remembered me. Yeah, I've, I've been hanging in this rain and in this flood for a long time. And now, and now, you know, there's something has changed in the providential relationship and God now sees me. So I don't think that those are, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think that they're two possible perspectives on the same, on the same idea. I agree with you hundred percent. And both of them pave the way for greater agency. I mean, obviously divine agency is unconstrained. It's just a question of when God or God does or does not exercise Right. But when it comes to humanity, the greatest enemy to our agency is feeling forgotten, is feeling that sort of the, the waters of the flood, as it were, for Noah or the great empire of Egypt is simply so large that, that we have no agency. We have no action. We can't do anything. But the feeling of being seen that, that God knows, if we look at that key moment in our parasha, right? God, God knows, God remembering, God knows that's enough for us to gain a platform that our lives matter, our actions have impact, that the choices that we make in light of who we were in the past give us the power to forge a path forward to a new future. This is really the power of memory, and which is why it's it's um, both transformative and for many people prohibitive. We get weighed down very quickly by our memories. I think also another piece that I, I think about, I believe this is from, this is from Rabbi Sachs, but the, we've sort of been dancing around it, that uh, history is an event that happens to somebody else, right? It's, it's his story, not in the, in the feminist sense of his story as opposed to her no, but story, but the second per- right. it's, <laughs> third person, right? Exactly, the right. third person. While memory is something that happens to me, right? It's part of my consciousness. It's part of, of who I am. And that really relates to that part about agency, that when somebody becomes part of my memory, right, if here we're speaking about the Exodus experience, then it becomes something that I can act with, I can use that, it's in my pocket, and I can I can move forward with it. So I, I think that also that differentiation between history, history and memory is always something that's very powerful for me. Well, I'll give you a trick question to demonstrate what you're saying. Does your memory exist in the past or in the present? Oh, I think it's both. It's, it's rooted in the past. Well, nothing exists, nothing exists in the past. Mm. Right, memory exists in the present. You're constantly reaching backwards. Let's leave aside the question of filters. What we actually remember, how we remember, those are complicated questions. Uh-huh. But you're reaching backwards to reattach in the present. Except there's a problem. I told you it was a quick, it was a trick question. You know why? You know what that was? I'll do it again. That was the present. Right, and unless you do a tremendous amount of mindfulness meditation work and you're incredibly focused, the present is a fleeting phenomenon. So the reality is, is that memory is future-oriented. We live in a tension between how we relate to our past and how we relate to the future, be it anxiety or anticipation, depending on what side of the bed we got up on, right? And, and so, therefore, we're in a constant activist process of reconstructing the past in a way in which will help us navigate the future, which we either fear or anticipate. And, and, and that's why we see, at least in reference to God, memory, the word at least coal, is always associated with redemption, be it personal or national. Meaning it's about the future. Your memory is future-oriented. Well, I, want you, I want you to maybe unpack that a little bit more, that piece. I feel like it has a lot sure. of depth to it, and I want everyone to, to really grasp that. Uh, this, this is a, a fundamental tool of, of narrative therapy, as it's been taught to me, is that the well 
of the past upon which we can draw is essentially infinite, right? I, I could, if I was a computer that had been recording everything that ever happened to me, plus, of course, we're speaking about the Exodus here. So, right, I happen to have been teaching for almost 15 years the story of Jewish history, starting from Daniel through to the present. I mean, I could rattle off dates, names, places. It's, it's without end. The question of what we remember not just what we choose to remember, what even is available to us, has more to do with who we are today than it has to do with what happened to us in the past, right? We're constantly trying to create a base for the identity of who we are, how we got to where we are. Most of us are hopefully trying to feel good about who we are, although unfortunately that's not always true for folks. But, you know, in, in doing that, we are subtly but constantly orienting ourselves toward where it is we want to go. Because identity is never static. Right? So therefore, as we remember, as we reach to the past, either in this formalistic sense that I remembered the Exodus of Egypt when I said Shema this morning, and I'll do it again tonight, and it's a formal sense that that's my frame. Except what difference does it make what happened in the past? Well, we, what's the answer? Is because it's the model for the redemption that please let it be soon. We're going to see in the future. So the way I attach my present identity and build it on that orients me toward the future that I believe that I desire. That make more sense? Yeah. And so my question is, if I bring us back into this week's Parsha, what are the pieces from the past that God wants us to take with us? What do we want in that suitcase of ours? If we're looking at the creation of our memory as something that is something that creates agency of something that is an active, right? That I think so far to me is the biggest piece here is that we've just, we're really discussing the fact that the concept of memory is an active process more than we realize. So what is it in that you see is reflected in the Psukim in this week's Parsha or in coming Parshiot that that's sort of the way that God wants to mold that experience? Well, you know, I would say it's important to note that the vessel for memory is family really, in this week's Parsha. I mean, the, the fact that we call it Shmot, and we, we start with the reintroduction in this transition between the, the sons of Jacob and the children of Israel, right? It's a it, it, very important switch which is happening. It's an attempt to avoid the sort of um, homogenization and the overgeneralization that can happen to us that really waters memory down right? Memory has its power in the specific. And yet, and yet, the specific is always limiting. So, when it comes down to it, after we get the names of the brothers and the review and the tribes, we, we get, right, Ish Levi and Bat Levi, right? These nameless people. Nameless people who come together so that the process of redemption can start to come to fruition. So there's a tension in memory between, I would call it the specific and the general. You want to remember that we're part of a family. And, you know, family is that thing that when you close your eyes, it doesn't go away, right? And, and because of that level of commitment, you know, whether it's a chosen one or one enforced on us, it's a powerful vessel we hold together. And, and I think another thing that we see that we're meant to take with us, as you said, um, is the crucial nature of individual evolution when it comes to paving the way for national redemption. We suddenly go into the story of Moshe, right? Moshe, who, who is both from the inside, he's from this sort of the priestly family, but he's completely from the outside. He's raised, you know, amongst the Egyptians. He has to go through his own evolution of remembering, 
that he's a Jew. He reattaches himself. Wow. Yes. And he goes out into the into the field and he sees and he identifies with, which is a shocking moment. It's in many ways perhaps the most shocking theological moment of the entire book. Why does Moshe identify with the oppressed in that moment? Even if he knows he's a Jew, we know that plenty of Jews in those situations hide their Jewishness. We run from it. We become, God forbid, the worst of the worst of the oppressors even. We know our history. This not at all what Moshe does. He has a deep identification, one which causes him not a small amount of trouble for the rest of his life, right? He's constantly saying to God, I don't get it. These people hate me. I'm trying. But it starts there, I would say. I mean, there's much more, but... So, you know, two thoughts came up for me as you were describing that. The first is, is that the psukim that come at the ends of of uh, Perak Bet, okay, which you had you had sent to me in our uh, in our correspondence before we recorded, uh, is it's it sort of looked at by by many academics as sort of like these transitional psukim, and it says in Perak Bet Pasuk of Gimel. Um, okay, that basically what happens is that at this point, the whatever Pharaoh he is dies, and we start suffering and actually utilizing our voice and expressing our our suffering. And eventually that that cry goes up to God, it reaches God. Right, God hears us. And then there's, of course, that keyword of God remembers here. It's the Brit that he made with our forefathers, which said that we would suffer, but there would be an end to that suffering, which is, I believe, the Brit that's being referred to here. And then it says, Vayar Elohim et Bnei Yisrael, Vayeda Elohim. Okay, God sees them, and then he knows them. Now, there's a whole podcast episode just here on looking at the verbs in these three. No Sukim. question. No okay, question. Okay, but, but the one point I want to bring up is that the to go back to your point about family is that I've often read this passage because it comes at the end of the story of Moshe being adopted. Okay, mm-hmm. what happens there? We have all these women who see the suffering of this child. And mostly we also have Bat Paro. Okay, we have Bat Paro who sees the suffering of this of this Hebrew child and does the opposite of what makes sense. It goes against her father's decree. And we have this many times in Tanakh where God does an action that to a certain degree mimics the actions of the humans that come before. The word vayar, to be seen, which can be a somewhat banal verb, is used many times in the previous parak, specifically by these women. And so after they see, they notice Moshe, they notice suffering. And also uh, in our parak, we have Moshe, as you said, who sees the suffering of the oppressed. It's the same word of vayar. And after God sees, you know what? Amidst all this evil, we have a few people here who are able to see beyond that. But Paro could see the suffering of a child. Moshe could see the suffering of the oppressed. Now I am ready to see the suffering of Ab Yisrael. I'm ready to pay attention to it. And it brings me back to that point that I, I love that point you made about family because I think this this chapter Please. really really proving it because it function. first starts with seeing within the family of the of the adoptive mother right of Moshe seeing his brethren it goes from internal family to the national family and then God sees Am Yisrael and so there's sort of like this opening circle and and that I was thinking about that when you brought up the 
the idea of uh, of family. I want to respond to your second point about individual evolution, but I feel like you have a thought that you want to share. It's where well, there's two things. That, first of all, it's beautiful that what you're pointing out is that in many ways, the quality of identifying with other beyond expectation through boundaries is one that Moshe learns from Bat Paro. That I hear that that point that you're making, which is which is really just a beautiful thought that could be sat with. Uh, the other one is that you know that Maria Montessori, the founder of the Montessori approach to education, says in the introduction form of her books is that we only see that which we're ready to take responsibility for, right? Because we walk through the world with many filters, some of them intentional, some of them not. And the type of memory we're speaking about, the identification with that leads to action, whether on the personal level of moving toward the future or on the divine level of redemption is a taking of responsibility, which is forced by a deep identification with. If you really identify with the suffering of Am Yisrael, that's what I would say. The God, what does God remember this Brit? He hadn't forgotten the Brit. God attached to that essential aspect of Brit, which isn't a give or take, you do X and I'll do Y, the covenant side, but is the essential relationship where family, God says, well, my, my family is suffering. How, I, I'm, we're not family if I don't do something at this point. Totally. And the, the other point that I wanted to I wanted to think about with you is about the individual evolution. Now here, I don't think that it reflects back on God, but I, the, when you speak about Moshe evolving, which again, another podcast episode of the evolution of Moshe as he's born has three vignettes that are recorded about him and then eventually finds himself in Midian. But through that point about individual evolution, Moshe, I want us to notice that Moshe is essentially being used as a microcosm for Am Yisrael, meaning Moshe, for all different reasons, it's essential that he basically grew up being an insider slash outsider. Uh, it enables him to sort of, right, when you're two in the inside, you can't see an event, you can't see broadly. And there was something essential about Moshe having grown up basically on the outside, but in enough so that they'll respect him, so that he can he can zoom out in a way that a slave would never be able to do, right? That's Ibn Ezra. It's a few other Parsha name there. But essentially, he becomes the model for what we have to do as well. And that goes back to the agency. You could only take agency, Am Yisrael, for your life when you're able to step out of it for a moment, right? That's what we need when we, when we take agency. We need to be able to say, I've been functioning like this, but now I need to rise beyond it and then, and then move forward. And so Moshe in those early chapters, through his, you know, penchants for justice and his inability to see people suffer and his identification with the weak uh, and, uh, and and his, of course, coming to a well because in good biblical fashion, he had to meet his wife by a well. But, Practically uh, speaking, I mean, it's kind of where you got to be, otherwise you die. Exactly. It's only, <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, to be to be a shepherd, which is also critical for, for God's leaders to be shepherds. But, but this piece about individual evolution, I think, is also to go back to that point about the agency and, and memory and it being an active process is also is also really essential because it's it's really what we have to do as a people and we first meet it in Moshe as our leader, but ultimately we are going to have to adopt that stance. It doesn't happen right away. We're very we're very dependent, kind of whiny um, uh, nation for a while, but ultimately ultimately we're going to have to adopt that that stance. And ironically, a lot of it is actually going to have to happen through a generation that wasn't those who were taken out because just like Moshe has to be somebody who's the inside but the outside. Ultimately, when we do gain our independence in Eretz Israel, it'll mostly be of a generation of people who weren't part of that initial experience, and I think for a similar reason. I mean, theology aside, I would argue it only could have been that way. 
why. There's, there's a process that I call historical mastication. It's an awkward term, but it, it fits, meaning it's how do you chew and swallow what history shoves down your throat? Now, as a people, we could ask that question, and you can ask it as an individual, right? The bottom line of what I hear and what you're saying is that ultimately, our suffering is meant to become a source of positive identity, right? But the process by which that takes place is a lengthy, difficult, demands agency, also demands grace. It doesn't always work. I mean, in many ways, you can look at the travel through the Midbar and perhaps even the whole Tukuvav Shoftim, right? The whole period of the judges as, as part of this historical mastication. By the way, we're going through it today as a people, the memory of the Holocaust, right? We're just getting to the point where the survivors, the ones with us should be healthy and well, but we'll no longer be there to bear witness, which is a different stage. Once you're no longer there to bear witness, there's only memory. And then kicks in the question, what does this memory serve? Is it a base for positive identity? I mean, I don't think most people are prepared to think about the Holocaust even still as a source for positive identity. But the reality is if you don't digest the tragedies in your own life and in your historical life and use them as a base for positive identity, you will choke on them. Your kids ever dance around the Seder table singing Pajama Bansa Laila? Right? Pharaoh in, in PJs yeah, it's one of the in the middle Israeli, of the night, right? Uh, it's a funny uh, song. Pieces of culture, yeah. Right, traditions. But just just think about what they're doing. This was a time of incredible suffering. I mean, you read the Midrashim, the, the, the horror really compares to the descriptions we've heard about the concentration camps. And here are our kids dancing around and laughing about Pharaoh out in his PJs at night. Why? Because for 3,000 years, multiple times daily, we've been touching this memory framing it, using it as a source for positive identity in the present and energy for the future. That's how memory works. That's why memory is a much more powerful tool than history. Wow. Hold on. I have a little bit of goosebump situation. <laughs> I need to process that. It goes well beyond the dictum that, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy because it's tragedy plus time equals Identity formation, essentially, is what you're saying. You're missing an ingredient, which is very important. Okay. I'm not a believer that time plus anything equals anything other than time. Tragedy plus time plus work. We, The wisdom of our sages in the way in which history is so profoundly and at the same time delicately woven into everything we do. Our stories are woven into everything we do on the personal, on the national, on the communal level. Don't miss that piece, because without that type of work, which is, please God, we should merit to that type of sort of psycho-spiritual guidance in our generation. It's one of the things that we're not yet prepared to engage with, with something like the Holocaust. And by the way, if you notice the Holocaust has a profound, the memory of the Holocaust has a profound impact on present identity and almost, almost in a fatalistic way dictates certain futures, many of which I'm not interested yeah. in. This is yeah. why what I, I call what I do narrative therapy for a nation. I'm not changing any facts when I tell the Jewish story. I'm trying to frame them in a way in which that allows us to live in a world that we actually, we merit, not just desire, a redeemed world. So, you know, in, in many ways, if we pull the frame back and we try to compare... Um, History, which is the the foundation of the sort of Greco-Roman Western cultural relationship to the past, and uh, that's a whole discussion unto itself. How how Western culture is deeply struggling 
with telling any story of its past, which is anything other than corrosive to its own identity. Um, so, but the hallmark quote is George Santayana's, those who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. I think I should probably say it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Sorry, that's the proper quote. Bishem Omro and all that, right? But condemned. You hear that? There's a fatalism, which memory is meant to save us from, but it's a it's an assumption that that the world works in cycles. We're called to a much more consciously active stance on our past, right? So I compare it to the quote from the Baal Shem Tov, which is that, as he says, and it's so important to me as a, both a personal counselor and as a teacher of our, of our history, he says, as with an individual, so it is with humanity. Exile flows from forgetting and redemption from remembering. Now, exile on the national scale is the belief I belong somewhere else, right? That's really at its core. I belong somewhere else. On the personal scale, it's self-alienation. This is not who I'm meant to be. When I sin, when I fail, when I make bad decisions, this is, I'm alienated from myself. So how does memory get me to that redemptive stage, be it as a national entity in our land, reflective of the, of the divine intent and not just simply taking refuge from being somewhere else, right? How how does memory serve that? Because memory tells me who I am. It's a conscious act of taking pieces of my past, remembering as a people and as a person in a way in which the future opens up before me, right? Redemption is not some passive state of being that we're trying to get to. It's a world we're trying to build. And in that sense, what the Baal Shem Tov is telling us is it's not just a member of remembering the facts of the past and avoiding the same mistakes. It's a, it's a question of choosing how we tell our story in order to make sure it crafts us into a people that really is equipped to build the redeemed world in which we want to live. And so I would say that our Parsha is really the turning point, as you said, in understanding that we have that agency, not just as individuals, but as a people. And that is a divine agency. We're not alone in this. We're partners. Because when we cry out, God does remember. And that itself opens up a door for redemption that we should merit to see speedily in our days. Thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like it's really opened up a, a different kind of door on on this whole conversation uh, surrounding the book of Shemot. Uh, we've really spoken about how we're not just recipients of the or, or we're not just walking through the exodus, but that there's an active process that happened for them and continually happens for us today as well. Uh, I think that image of of the the, the children, again, singing Parabah Pijama Bem Salayla is, is a really pointed one because it really points this idea that over time, we we have we make effort and we 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 craft a kind of of story for ourselves and that that is integral to the way that we we live and continue to create and as you said eventually eventually redeem i think we've also pointed to the fact that there are a number of prongs or sort of jumping points for how this process begins we have the process 
beginning to a certain degree with God, but ultimately God's just responding to us, right? God is responding to us being ready to go through this kind of process. And as we said as well, and I'm sure we'll get into this more in future episodes, we also have the idea of Moshe being some sort of model, being some sort of model to look at as we go through this process, that he himself goes through his own evolution. Also, of course, will make his own uh, mistakes as well that we will also make in this process. But really, it's a totally different way of thinking about it, of thinking about our memory as something active, as something that we cultivate, as something that we mold over time. So I really, really appreciate uh, this perspective on this on this idea. Well, listen, I'm happy to share it. It's very close to my heart. And I can say that both on the personal and on the national scale, this works. It really is. You know, time plus memory and effort really can bring about a, a better world. So I bless us all that we should have a peace in it. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.